This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Mortgage rates have uh, been dipping right now, just ahead of the spring home buying season. Freddie Mac releasing data yesterday that said that a 30-year fixed rate average was at around 4.35%. And there's news that mortgage applications have picked up, though housing prices are also on the rise in many markets as well. There has also been an increase recently in unconventional mortgages. That's when a buyer who can't provide the standard proof of income can still get a loan. These are similar to what led to the housing crisis more than a decade ago. It was also during the financial crisis that home lenders Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were put under government control. Now some congressional Republicans are pushing for the two to be made private once again. With more on all of these mortgage stories, we're joined here in studio by Benjamin Keyes, assistant professor in the real estate department here at the Wharton School, and joining us on the phone, Guy Sakala, who is the CEO of Inside Mortgage Finance. Ben, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for Thank having you. me. Guy, great to have you back with us. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, what, what? I guess, looking at the mortgage market in general, what should the expectation be that we have for this year in general? The rates obviously playing a factor, but the sales have been a little bit off the last year as well. That's right. They have. I I think, you know, this is the the market really moves with interest rates um, in a very strong way. And so we saw rates uh, up around 5% um, for a 30-year fixed rate loan uh, among those who are very highly qualified in the second half of last year. And that really put a damper on the market. Uh, And now with rates coming back down and potentially staying down for at least a little while longer, um, I think there's sort of a renewed hope um, for this year uh, in terms of the housing market, in terms of demand for, for borrowers. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, even in the context of a really booming uh, labor market, extremely low unemployment rate, um, and we've talked in the past about some of the limitations there, um, the, the housing market is not booming in the same way. Sure. This, this is, we're not seeing um, huge amounts of construction. We're not seeing sort of huge amounts of, of home buying going on. And so, I think we have to keep in mind that you know even even in a situation where the economy is doing as well as it is, um, the housing market is not going to be the thing that's pulling it forward. But in some ways, it's it's being dragged along. Guy, I mentioned that in part because of some comments made by St. Louis Federal Reserve President James Bullard earlier in the week, and and he basically came out and said that he didn't expect to see any interest rate increases at least in the near term. Uh, which obviously, I think the 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 those companies that are involved in housing have to feel pretty good about. Yeah, I, th- I think that's correct. I think, you know, the expectation certainly going into last year was that mortgage rates and interest rates overall were just going to rise for the foreseeable future. And basically, we've gotten a reprieve on that. Um, and that 4.35%, as you um, reported earlier, that's a pretty good rate. I think the expectations are we were going to be at 4.5% or higher this year. So, That is good news. Of course, there are other factors that are um, casting a cloud over the overall housing market, such as low inventories, lack of new construction, um, rising home prices in hot markets. There are a lot of issues out there, but mortgage rates, low mortgage rates certainly help uh, promote everything. Yeah, Guy, does does this information coming out about more and more unconventional mortgages starting to hit the market, is that something that we should be worried about with all of the kind of dynamics that are at play right now? Well, it's something that's always been out there. It just 
you know, obviously it reached a peak um, leading up to the recession and the housing crisis when we had, you know, woke up one day and discovered that basically a third of all mortgages being made could be classified as subprime with very little um, concrete underwriting or equity behind it. And that, you know, was a major contribution to the housing crisis. Um, what happened, of course, is that market vanished. And as times have improved and the mortgage market has stabilized more, it's starting to come back. I, I should make the distinction that the type of what we'd call non-prime mortgages that are being made now are not akin to the ones that led up to the housing crisis, at least not yet. Right. The underwriting is fairly significant in that you have to produce alternative forms of um, income or assets, and you have to have some equity in it. They're not the no documentation, no equity loans we saw um, leading up to the housing crisis. I think that's a great point, Guy. I think just to, to kind of add on to that, if you think about the the affordability challenges for most homeowners and what they're looking at when, when they go and take out a a 30-year fixed rate loan and being able to make that, that monthly payment, as we see interest rates rise, um, there's a real uh, pressure, I think, to, for um, – for lenders to offer products that are going to drive down that that monthly price. And so, uh -huh. I mean, you've certainly seen this in, in previous um, iterations of the housing cycle. And I, I released a, a working paper recently um, with a couple of uh, co-authors. Um, it's, it's through the um, Chica uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago working paper series um, that really highlights uh, around 2003 when we saw the end of the refinancing boom. Um, and interest rates rose very sharply over that period, about 100 basis points. Um, this is really when we see this huge rise in the unconventional mortgage space across a bunch of different dimensions in terms of uh, less uh, documentation, in terms of um, teaser rates and the sort of um, exotic uh, products, the negative amort negatively amortizing loans that drive down um, costs uh, uh, at least temporarily. And so I think uh, we're nowhere near uh, the the types of products or the the quantity of those kind of products, but we're right. taking the first steps in that direction. But but guy, what kind of percentage are we talking about here now uh, of of these types of unconventional loans starting to hit back in, into the market in comparison to all mortgages that are out there right now? Um, we're still less than five percent. Um, so you know, contrast that with more than thirty percent that we saw in. 2006 and 2007. Um, so we're at a, a relatively low rate. Um, but as Ben pointed out, I think we have the same conditions that helped grow or promote that market, which is basically a downturn in mortgage activity, drying up of refi activity. And most mortgage lenders are facing the prospect of reduced activity unless they can come up with a way to boost um, business going forward, and one of those is to move into non-conventional products. And, and it's amazing when you look at some of the data that's out there, Ben, you go back, what, about four years or so, uh, unconventional mortgages were almost nil uh, on the marketplace. And now you're upwards of, of $12 billion of unconventional mortgages that are out there on the market right now. Yeah, and I think it comes back to the, the secondary market for these types of products. And so you can think about um, some mortgages are being held on banks' balance sheets um, right. and sort of the historical traditional way of uh, of lending. But, um, you know, most loans uh, these days are securitized, and that means they're bundled and sold to investors. Um, and traditionally, those will go through um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac if they are sort of uh, conforming prime loans. So those are high-quality loans with right. documentation of income and assets. 
Uh, and what we saw in the wake of the crisis was the the private secondary market, the market for all the other loans, the the, the loans that are too big for Fannie and Freddie, that don't have good enough credit scores, good enough documentation. Um, that market really dried up um, and basically vanished. And so, um, what we're starting to see now is a little bit more interest in. Uh, redevelopment of that market, and some of that ties into the what you mentioned at the outset. And this, where should we go with where are Fannie and Freddie going to go, and yeah. how do we carve out space for a private secondary market? And so, as there's a pickup of interest among investors and others, um, we're starting to see more appetite for that type of risk, and that kind of fuels the liquidity that for a willingness to fund these types of un- unconventional mortgages. Well, and, and then, guy, the question about about Fannie and Freddie and whether or not they should go private again it becomes an important one. And this is, I guess, something that is circulating on Capitol Hill right now. I, I think there are probably some people out there, may, maybe that are new home buyers in the last couple of years, that that may not even realize that they had these entities had been private prior to uh, the housing crisis more than a decade ago. Yeah, you know. Fixing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, resolving the government uh, housing finance system is a, a very challenging problem because, you know, on one hand, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, even through conservatorship, remained a huge part of the mortgage market, accounting for at least 60 percent of all mortgages, uh, new mortgages being made. And when you talk about changing anything um, uh, regarding them, you worry about disrupting the status quo and causing problems in the market. And even though, you know, it says, okay, let's reinvent Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, everybody is very sensitive about doing it because no one wants to take credit for breaking the mortgage market, particularly if it's in a precarious, somewhat precarious state with the housing market now. So should Fannie and Freddie be private again, Ben? I I don't think so. And I think that there's a a version of Fannie and Freddie which – there's a there's a role um, of you know so Fannie and Freddie are complicated entities and they provide a lot of different services. They really are sort of the infrastructure behind the mortgage finance system, and you can sort of think of them as like the pipes um, behind the the flow of, of funds from homeowners to uh, to investors being intermediated through through go- the government and being wrapped in this um, this guarantee. You know, I don't think this is the only way to design a mortgage finance system, but I think it's one of those things like the like the pipes in our houses that we don't tend to think about too much, except uh, when it's broken. And I think that there's, you know, a real a real challenge here in terms of um, the risk of just a a, a huge giveaway um, to the private market. And if you look at the proposals that are being pushed most aggressively right now, a, a lot of those proposals have a, a component in them that would really benefit some hedge funds that invested yeah. heavily. Um, in the in the at the time worthless shares of of Fannie and Freddie when they were taken into conservatorship, and it's really just sort of accounting reasons why they weren't fully wiped out initially. Um, but you know, there's a there are ways to do this that I think um, can sort of divide up some of the various tasks of Fannie and Freddie. And so Fannie and Freddie do so many different things. They support the multifamily market and and apartments. Yeah. Um, they provide liquidity for 30 year fixed rate mortgages, um, especially through the the to be announced market. Um, they guarantee these loans for um, to protect investors on the potential for default. So they do this huge range of things. I, I think there are, there are elements which would be better um, done at least partially by the private market. But some of those things and some of those government backstops are going to be there no matter how you set up this system. And so right. we should at least make the, some of those guarantees explicit and then charge for them. Well, you mentioned the business side of this because there are quite a few of those hedge funds and other investors who invested in these 
companies, Fannie and Freddie. And it's been written quite a bit about the fact that they have lost out on dividends over the last several years because of the fact that these have been in conservatorship by, by the U.S. government. Well, that's right. And I think they were placing a bet. And this is not hedging anything, as far as I can tell, despite the name hedge fund. But they're yeah. placing a big bet on uh, the direction that we're going to go in terms of reforming the mortgage finance system and that we're going to move it to a more a more private system. And they've lobbied very aggressively for that um, in powerful places. And so I think, um, you know, whether they're losing out on dividends or whether they should have been wiped out entirely in the first place is kind of the the key distinction. At the moment, Fannie and Freddie are not allowed to build up any capital reserves of their own, and they're not allowed to pay out any dividends on uh, on the stock that exists. And so uh, basically all of their um, if you think of them as profits are being swept into the, the Treasury's budget every quarter. And in some sense, that, that sweep every quarter is plugging a, a hole in other, that would otherwise be there from the rest of the, of the government. And so um, reforming the system is in part so difficult. And I, liked, I really like Guy's point on this. It's so difficult to do in part because there are a lot of, of moving parts and it, they do a lot of um, provide a lot of different services, but also it would be killing the golden goose. And so you'd have to yeah. think about how... How do we structure a system that um, that's going to fill that that hole in terms of revenue? Um, but again, it's sort of a function of um, an insurance company. When times are good, uh, insurance companies are flush. Guy, impact uh, if this move is potentially made, the impact for the average consumer that that might have a mortgage with one of those two entities would be what? Um, well, an existing mortgage would be fine, you know, uh, regardless of what happens to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They don't actually service the mortgages. They provide a government guarantee effectively on those mortgages so that investors buy them. So by and large, the average consumer who's got a Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loan deals with Wells Fargo, Chase, Quicken, whoever happens to be servicing them. So they'll see no impact regardless. The impact is really going forward someone buying a home, are they going to always have access to a basically government-guaranteed 30-year fixed-rate mortgage? And that's what makes uh, reforming Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac so difficult to do. You know, there are basically three choices out there. Um, Do you replace them completely with some other system? Um, Do you privatize them and try to add a few more players to it? Um, Or do you come up with... uh, something that is uh, using them as utilities and basically make them government agencies and continue what they're doing now. And all those um, have problems and neither none of them have total support behind them. So what do you think then is the best option moving down the road for these entities that are so big, Guy? Well, one of the problems is, and I think Ben alluded to it, is you know, we want more private sector involvement, although we don't really want to cut back on the government's footprint in the mortgage market. You know, with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, the government effectively accounts for about 80 percent of the mortgage market. You know, yeah. that's a much bigger share than you see in any other country in the world. And um, I'm not sure that's the best uh, model to have. That being said, Nobody wants to give up any one of those pieces. So, you know, we're talking about bringing in private sector involvement on the edges without dealing with that fundamental issue is how big should the government be in the mortgage market? Ben, your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. I think the, you know, this has been a tension for for quite some time that goes well before the financial crisis in terms of thinking about the role of, of the government in, in, the, in the mortgage market. And there have been 
uh, many people who have who have pushed um, loudly and aggressively for uh, more privatization in in the in the mortgage market. And one of those folks is now going to be in a position of of great power. Um, so this is the uh, Mark Calabria, who's the head of the FHFA, um, which is the the group that has oversight over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And it's going to be very interesting to see. I mean, he's really an outspoken critic of of Fannie and Freddie and sort of of the whole system uh, in which the government supports the the mortgage market. Um, and so it's going to be very interesting to see, despite some of his toned down rhetoric um, when he's being asked these questions on the Hill, um, you know, if he is... Um, if he is in fact um, put in that in that position and approved for that that position, um, whether he actually makes uh, some steps to uh, to bring in more private um, more private actors in the market, and there are quite a few things that he can do unilaterally. So he has quite a bit of power um, to change the the dimensions of the loans that Fannie and Freddie are insuring. He can change the ways in which they support things like cash out refinancings or purchases of. Um, of second homes or investor properties, there are ways in which he could change the uh, or put pressure on the the size of the down payment required, and so there are a lot of different parameters um, at his disposal, and it'll be very interesting to see whether um, he's willing to rock the boat um, exactly along the lines that Guy was describing. That yeah. um, disrupting this market would be very very costly to a lot of people. Now, one of the other things which I, I've seen talked about uh, that I wanted to bring up is. Is mortgage servicing, which apparently is becoming a more and more aggressive area with some of the dynamics that we've had in the in the uh, home selling market, that getting the mortgages themselves or being able to service them, guy, has become an ever growing area of competition uh, across the United States right now. Yeah, you know, historically. Mortgage servicing has been the bread and butter for mortgage banking companies or more, or major mortgage lenders. Um, you know, going back to you know twenty years or so, lenders were willing to originate mortgages at losses and not make any money or lose money on it for the prospect of putting servicing on their books. And that's because the cash flow and the spreads they make on servicing those monthly um, uh, mortgage payments is a good business to be in. The whole boat got totally rocked during the um, foreclosure crisis, as you might imagine, because suddenly servicing a mortgage was not a sure thing anymore. All these um, uh, major servicers had to put in call centers and handle um, borrowers who couldn't make their mortgage payments and everything. And so servicing was really a liability for perhaps seven or eight of the last 10 years. Um, that's changed as we move through the foreclosure crisis. Mortgage servicing became a stable business, low foreclosures, um, and also rising interest rates help because one thing that hurts servicing is refinancings because if you have a certain amount of mortgages you service and then half of them refinance overnight, you lose that business and have to acquire new business. So a rising interest rate environment, particularly what we saw in the first part of last year, was very good for the mortgage servicing business and focused more attention on that um, by many lenders. Ben? Yeah, I think that's a great a great summary, Guy. I mean, I think of a lot of these firms as having uh, you know different sources of, of revenue. So one is to originate a loan and then sell it on to Fannie Freddie or the FHA, and you collect a fee for doing that. Um, and then the other way to do it is to have this portfolio of loans that you're servicing, and it's not a glamorous business. Most of the time, it's actually quite boring. You're collecting checks from homeowners every month, and then yeah. you're making sure that um, the bills are getting paid, the money is being distributed to investors and the tax authorities. 
um, insurance companies and you collect a small amount uh, off of each of those checks. So you can think of those two things. And as the origination volumes, especially from refinancing, have have fallen as interest rates rise, um, a lot of these firms are, are trying to find ways to stay afloat. Um, and one way to do that is to service more uh, of these loans, and so expanding their servicing business. Uh, the other is to just sell the, their, their servicing rights and try to get some cash um, up front. And so I feel like some of this is a sign of weakness among some of these firms, that they're struggling along as their refinancing volume has plummeted. And so they can't be real happy right now, a guy, as you kind of alluded to, with the with the fact that uh, mortgage rates have been on the decline, at least in the uh, in the last few weeks. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things uh, we'll just have to see is um, what is the trigger going to be to resurrect um, mortgage refinancings? Um, clearly, 4.5% drove uh, refinancings down to like 20% of the overall market. But if you get now to 4.35 or even perhaps lower, you're going to see borrowers, for example, who just got mortgages last year um, at close to 5% who would benefit from refinancing already. And um, that's going to promote temporarily at least mortgage originations, but it's also going to impact negatively servicing and servicing prices that are paid for people uh, looking to sell. But is there an impact on somebody making such a quick turnaround? You alluded to somebody getting a mortgage last year. Is there an impact on that person doing such a quick turnaround on refinancing the loan guy? Oh, sure, because they're going to have to revisit their closing costs. And as anybody who knows who's gotten a mortgage, getting the mortgage is not, you know, just with your monthly payments, you also have to pay, you know, basically a transfer tax, some um, fees associated with closing costs. Um, and even if you can kind of roll those into a new mortgage thing, it's questionable whether this time around it's going to be. But on the other hand, if you're somebody with a 5% mortgage and you see the opportunity to refinance and you're not sure whether you'll get an opportunity again in the next 10 or 20 years, you feel like acting upon it. And I'm sure mortgage lenders, particularly brokers, are going to be pretty active in going after borrowers who have higher interest rate mortgages and saying, why don't you consider refinancing? Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Guy, for your time on the phone. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Great seeing you again. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having coming me. in. Benjamin Keyes from here at the Wharton School. Guy Sakala, CEO of Inside Mortgage Finance. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.